Right, well, good morning, and uh, welcome to uh, Red Village Church. I've not met you. My name's Aaron, and um, oh, it's a lot. Uh, and I'm the preaching pastor here, and uh, we're glad that you're, uh, you're with us today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to the book of 1 Samuel. Today, our text study comes from 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. If you're new to the Bible, 1 Samuel is kind of in the first quarter or so of the, of the book. This is an Old Testament passage. Also, if you're visiting with us, so we've been working through 1 Samuel for, uh, I guess, over a year now. Just kind of chapter by chapter, kind of slowly been working through this with a few breaks in between. And so we're actually coming to the end. Um, only a few more studies uh, left of uh, this Old Testament book. So 1 Samuel 28. For this time here, I'm just going to read the first seven verses. And then I'm going to pray, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. And then we will get to work. So... 1 Samuel 28, starting verse 1. This is what the Bible says. In those days, the Philistines gathered the forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servants can do. And Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul put out the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and camped at Geboah. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, allowing us to gather together uh, this morning here at um, as Red Village Church. And uh, Lord, thank you for your holy word. And I do pray that you'd bless the preaching of your word. Help me, God, to be a good communicator. Keep me from error as we work through this text. Please help the congregation to be good listeners. And pray that your spirit would guide us to all truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning as we gather together to continue the study of 1 Samuel, we come to perhaps the most interesting passage in the book, simply because this is a little strange, uh, a little odd, in that this story, the details of the story of our passage today, uh, there is a medium, which other translations actually use the word witch. Uh, there's a seance. There is Samuel, at least a Samuel-like figure, coming from the dead to speak to Saul. So, so there's a lot going on. A lot of odd things in this passage. And because of how odd this text is to us, the temptation is actually to get really focused on trying to understand the various odd details in ways that we actually miss out what the emphasis of the text is, which I think is an emphasis just how far Saul had fell as he became completely engulfed by sin. And I do think this is the emphasis of the text. And because of that, as we gather together this time, that's where I want to keep our focus. And so just as a review of, our, of ourselves, to refresh us where we've been in our study of Samuel, especially as it comes to the character of Saul, uh, let me just kind of give us a little bit of details where we've already studied. So now the time frame, it's hard to know exactly how much time has passed from when we first met Saul, which is in chapter 9 to our text today. But probably thinks that maybe around like 30 years, maybe Saul's like entire adult life or so. So in chapter 9, when we first met Saul, we met a young man who was tall and good-looking. In fact, the tallest, best-looking man in the area. 
And not only was Saul tall and good-looking, he also came from a wealthy family, which made Saul an ideal candidate to fulfill the wishes of God's people, who in the previous chapter, in chapter 8 for Samuel, demanded from the Lord that he would give them a king to be like the kings of all the nations around them. Chapter 9, we learned some biographical details about Saul. Um, we also learned that he was on a donkey search and rescue mission. Remember that story? And how he's on that uh, rescue mission with one of his servants, his father's servants. And shortly into this donkey search and rescue, uh, search and rescue mission, we learned a couple things about Saul in terms of his character. Uh, first, we learned he didn't seem to be a very hard worker, maybe even as like a spoiled brat. Because that seemed to be the case because shortly after looking around for the donkeys, Saul just kind of wanted to give up, go home, give up on the mission, even though the donkeys were still on the loose. And the only reason why Saul did not follow through on giving up was because of the servant who was with him, who insisted they kept looking. Second, we also learned about Saul that he didn't seem to be very committed to the Old Testament faith in God. And that didn't seem to be the case because the servant of Saul, as he insisted that they keep looking for the donkeys, he also suggested that they would seek out Samuel, who was the great prophet and priest, for them to see if perhaps Saul could help them in their rescue mission. But even though Samuel was the great prophet and priest over Israel, someone who had been incredibly famous, Saul had like no clue who he was. So that's how we first met Saul, like a good-looking rich kid, perhaps spoiled, who seemed to have like no interest in the things of God. However, surprisingly to Saul himself, as the people of God were looking for their king, a king after their own heart to rule over them, Saul was actually the very person they were looking for because he looked apart. Right, tall, good-looking, wealthy. That, that's all they cared about, that Saul checked all the external boxes. And because he checked those boxes, his lack of character, his lack of spiritual health was like little to no concern uh, to them. So in chapters 9 and 10 of our study for Samuel, Saul became the king over Israel. And as Saul first became king, as you may remember, he actually did a pretty good job. In chapter 10, God's empowering spirit fell on Saul, uh, we see that he was like, very popular, well-liked among the vast majority of God's people. In chapter 11, Saul was used by the Lord to rally God's people together in ways to defeat the Ammonites, uh, which led to the kingdom that Saul was over actually being renewed, which brought a lot of like, unity and rejoicing for God's people. Uh, at the start of Saul's uh, reign, he even had Samuel pretty active and involved in helping him to lead. So he actually had a pretty good start for Saul. But then we got to chapter 13. And as you remember, the good start quickly got away from him, and things went drastically uh, the opposite direction. And the reason for that is because of an unlawful sacrifice that Saul made. Now, you may remember the context of that sacrifice. So things are not going well for God's people. Their rivals, the Philistines, were on the attack against them. And the Philistines had God's people on the run. And as the battle raged on, Saul sent for Samuel to come to make sacrifices to the Lord with the hopes that the Lord would intervene for them. However, as Samuel was delayed in coming to the military camp that Saul had set up, we read that the morale of the men started to go south and go down south fast. In fact, the morale was so low that more and more started to get AWOL from Saul and the army. And you may remember, this put Saul into a panic. So rather than trusting in the Lord, trusting in God's word, trusting in the Lord's timing, and when Saul or Samuel was to arrive on the scene, you may remember how Saul decided to take matters into his own hands. He could not wait on the Lord any longer. He could not wait for Samuel any longer. So Saul himself offered up the sacrifice. Even though, biblically speaking, that job was reserved only for the priest. 
And as Saul made this unlawful sacrifice, as he broke God's law, this is where we start to begin to see, like Saul had some real control issues that he struggled with, which issues he struggled with the rest of his reign. Chapter 13, as Saul made this unlawful sacrifice, the Lord became very angry towards him, so angry that he actually rejected Saul from being king. And from there, life of Saul has just been a snowball of disaster, a snowball of sin that has just continued to build, where the good start of Saul very quickly turned into just a mess, where Saul proved time and time and time again to be a cautionary tale for us in our study of 1 Samuel. Now, I won't go through all the details of Saul's spiraling downfall, but let me give you a few more cliff notes. Chapter 14, we read how Saul recorded uh, how Saul was running his mouth, making some rash vows. Chapter 14, we see how he was like a terrible dad who was willing to see his son Jonathan killed in order for himself to save face. Uh, chapter 15, Saul rejected more clear instructions from the Lord in terms of how Saul was to wipe out the Amalekites, who were a wicked people, only for Saul to reject this command as an attempt at his own personal gain, it seemed like. Chapter 17, that's the famous story of David and Goliath where David stepped in the gap for God's people to be the representative to fight their battles, to win the battles. So that really should have been Saul. He should have been the one who was willing to step into the gap to fight Goliath. But he was too much of a coward to do that. Chapter 18, Saul's jealousy towards David started to really amp up. So the first time Saul tried to kill David, even though David was his trusted, loyal servant. So you may remember in that passage, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. And this is where the control issues really start to spiral out of control for him. He's doing all that he can to keep his power. Chapter 18, more details on how terrible the dad Saul was, where he tried to use his precious daughters basically as pawns in his ongoing attempts to kill David. Chapter 19, more attempts by Saul to kill David. Uh, chapter 20, more information on how bad of a dad Saul was, how he went after Jonathan, some really harsh words simply because Jonathan was a friend to David. Chapter 22, you may remember how Saul employed an evil servant man named Dueg, who went on a murderous rampage in a city called Nob, where Dueg killed everyone except for one priest who was able to escape. Chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, more attempts on David's life by Saul, where he's basically using every resource available to him to try to kill David. Like, he's obsessed here. And finally, chapters 24 and 26, Saul made some empty promises to be good to David after David spared his life in both those chapters, promises that Saul really had no intentions of keeping. So from chapter 13 on, there's just been this spiraling, sinful disaster of Saul where he has like little to no regard for God's word, who could not give up his control, his power, who refused to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness, who is literally mowing down anyone who dared to stand in his way. And all that, I think, is building to our passage today this odd passage, which is the culmination of just how far this man, Saul, had fell. Right? Good-looking guy, but a good start, only for him to finish an incredible, sinful ugliness. Okay, so that a bit of a refresher. Look back with me, starting in verse 1. So all we're going to do is just going to work through all of chapter 28. I'm just going to kind of work through verse by verse. So if you have a Bible with you, keep them open. So starting in verse 1. So we see here that we, the hated Philistines were back on the attack. And they were able to gather their forces to fight against Israel. And as the Philistines were on the attack, we read that Achish, who we learned last week, was the king of the Philistine city of Gath. We see how he went to David and said to David, Hey David, 
Understand that you and your men are to go with the army to fight. Okay, now just a reminder where we were last week. So David was not in a great place. He was seemingly burnt out. So he fled to Gath, where he became like a mercenary for Achish, who had deep trust in David, which a deep trust brought on because of how deceptive David actually was to Achish, where David is able to convince Achish that he actually jumped ship and became a traitor to God's people. So now here in our text today, Achish is still trusting David, trusting that David would continue in his traitorous ways to go and fight against Israel. And as Achish made this request to David, we see David agree. Verse 2, David Achish. Uh, very well. You should do what your servant can do. To which Achish responded, Black, okay, great. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, now this here, David agreeing. This actually seems to be a little bit more manipulation here by David, where maybe he's trying to like buy time to figure out, further figure out how he can get out of the jam that he put himself in as he agreed to be Achish mercenary. In the text today, in deception, his cunning ability, he was able to convince Achish in such a way that he was so on his side that Achish even made him his like personal bodyguard. Well, this is going to come back into play when we get through chapter 29. But then as we keep going in our text today, we see there's a little bit of a transition surrounding David for the author now to take us back to Saul, which really is kind of a slow churn in the passage, verse 3. Where we see the author remind us that Samuel had died. And all of Israel mourned for him and buried him in his hometown of Ramah. And before Samuel died, we see in the text that he was actually able to convince Saul that he was to put away all the mediums or, or witches and all the necromancers, which basically like wizards or magicians, to put them out of the land of Israel. So now, if we're reading First Samuel for the first time, this may feel a little strange, a little odd for the author to remind us that Samuel died, uh, to share one of the initiatives that happened before he died. But this information here is actually going to set up uh, for us what to come. So hold on to this information. Verse 4. As the Philistines gathered their forces together, we see they came to the camp at Shunem, which appears to be a location that was like well into Israel's territory. And as they set up camp there, Saul was able to gather all of Israel, and they set up their own camp, our text tells us, in Gilboa, maybe like eight miles to the southeast of where the Philistine camp was. Verse 5, as these two armies set up camp, we see that Saul went on a scouting trip, and he traveled the eight miles to get a view of the Philistine camp. You know, to see with his own eyes what he was up against. And as Saul was able to put his eyes on the Philistine camp, what he saw was incredibly concerning to him because the size of the Philistine army was massive. It was so massive that our text tells that instantly Saul's heart becomes like gripped with fear. And then his heart began to like tremble. So for Saul here, as he looked down this camp, he knew this was a battle that he was not going to be able to win. The army was just too massive. So in his heart, he begins to panic. He begins to scramble to try to figure out, okay, what do I do from here? So in verse 6 of our text, we see that Saul starts to inquire of the Lord. But we see that the Lord would not answer him. No dreams. Uh, no answers to the Old Testament practice of casting lots by Urim. Uh, there's no prophet sent his way to tell him what to do from here. There's, there's nothing from the Lord. Silence. I'm sure for Saul, terrifying silence. Now, I should mention here that the Lord did not answer Saul in our text because, like, the Lord was, like, absent or because he was, like, too busy doing something on the far other end of the universe to concern himself with what's going on in Israel. 
Uh, likewise, the Lord answers because he's like apathetic to the world. The Lord didn't answer Saul here because the Lord was just being cruel to Saul. Brother, there's no answer at this scene because the Lord actually already made it clear to Saul that he had rejected Saul as king. So we see that in verses chapters, uh, or chapters 13 and 15. That's true, Sam, that the Lord let Saul know that he was rejected. And he was rejected because of his own sinful actions. So even though the Lord did not answer Saul here in verse 6 of our text, the Lord already made his intentions clear to Saul. Saul just wasn't listening. He didn't believe what God had said. Keep going, verse 7. As Saul did not get what he wanted from the Lord in the text, we say we see he decided he had to go look to other places for answers. You know, the answers that he wanted. So in the text, we see that Saul calls over one of his servants, and he gives them the order to go find a medium that he may go to her and inquire of her. Which is here for Saul. You know what? The Lord won't give me what I want. It's time to go and look other places. And for us, this is where we begin to see just how far the snowball of sin is growing in Saul's heart. Think about this. He's looking for a medium, a witch, to solve his problems. And Saul gave the instructions. We see the servants actually had someone in mind already, which probably tells us a little bit about the type of people Paul was, or Saul was surrounding himself with. In the text, the person the servants had in mind was a medium from the area of Andor. Or a point of interest here of Endor, which is its location. So this location it actually was on the other side of where the Philistine camp was. So for Saul to get to Endor, this would have been a difficult, dangerous journey for him to do. And because of the danger, we see in verse 8 that Saul decided he'd better go into his costume bag and to put on some garments that would help him disguise him, the two men who were going to go with him, to help prevent him getting noticed and caught by the Philistine camp. So in the text, with the costumes on, we see that they made their way to Endor under the cover of night, no doubt to also help themselves stay hidden. And as Saul came to the woman, we read that he said to her, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now, as the medium was given this request, at first she gave Saul, like, pushback, because at the start, so you know, the identity of Saul was actually uh, hidden to her as well. So in the text, medium to Saul with pushback here. No, I, I'm not going to do this for you. Don't, you. don't you know what Saul has done, how he cut off all the mediums and necromancers from the land? I, I'm not going to help you with this request. Because if word gets out, what if I am doing this for you? This is too much of a risk for my own life. And really, stranger, who are you? Are you just here to try to like, set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Verse 10, as this woman protested the request of Saul, we see that Saul responds back, swearing to the Lord. Like, as the Lord lives, listen, I'm telling you, no punishment will come upon you if you do this thing for me. Let's just say, pause here. Isn't this incredible gall of Saul here? So he's going to a medium, and as he's doing this, he's invoking the name of the Lord. He's even like bringing a, a curse upon himself. Right? There's like no fear, no reverence towards God here. So he's like, like just drunk with desire to keep his power, his control. Like this is like over-the-top hypocrisy by Saul in this text. Right? Invoking the name of the Lord, while at the same time trying to use a witch to use some type of black magic to communicate with the dead. 
I mean, this is, this is wild. Verse 11. As the woman heard Saul's assurance that he was not setting a trap for her, you see that he was convincing to the woman. So she lets her guard down and asks Saul, okay, fine. Who do you want me to summon from the dead for you? To which Saul responds back, uh, I want Samuel, which is another indication of just how much of a sinful mess Saul is here. Right? He's using a witch to try to talk to the great prophet and priest of God, who in our text already reminded us was already dead. And Saul made his request. He did so with the thought that Samuel could give him the answer why the Lord was not speaking to him. So keep going. As the woman heard the request from Saul, she went into her seance to seek to make or meet Saul's request. And as she was doing some type of black magic, we read in the passage, she actually saw Samuel, or at least a Samuel-like figure. And as she sees Samuel, we see in the text, like she screams out with like a terrifying, loud voice. Now, this is where the text really takes its odd turn. And this is where it's tempting for us to like put all of our focus on the passage, you know, to try to figure out what, exactly what's going on here. Now, it is important for us to try to understand what's going on here. It just can't be the sole focus for us uh, this morning in this passage. Because if we do that, we can lose the primary purpose of the passage, which he keeps saying is to show us just how far Saul had fell, which is an incredible warning to us, which so much of 1 Samuel actually has been building towards in this book. But that being said, let me try to help us think through some of these odd details. So first, it's the detail of the medium screaming. So perhaps she screamed because she knew that there's some type of godly figure approaching her. So we see that in verse 13. Now how she describes what she saw to Samuel probably indicates that she didn't fully know it was Samuel, uh, that she didn't know that's who she saw. But she could tell it was some type of godly figure coming her way. And that, that terrified her. So perhaps that's why she screamed. Or perhaps she screamed simply because she actually saw someone. Perhaps up to this point, anytime she would do some type of seance, it was just more like an act. You know, maybe something like a money-making scheme, like a fortune teller at the circus, you know, who looks into a crystal ball. So perhaps for the first time, this medium actually saw someone coming to her. And that caused her to panic, to scream. Okay, it's hard to know why she's screaming. Second, maybe odd detail, is Samuel. And the question here, is this actually Samuel? You know, actually Samuel coming to communicate from the dead. Or was it just some type of figure who seemed to look like Samuel? Now, there is certainly debate throughout Christianity if this was or was not Samuel. Now, personally, I actually tend to think the text presents in such a way that this actually is Samuel, not just a figure who looks like Samuel. Now, obviously, this brings forth a lot of discussion that we don't have time to work through this morning concerning what happens when one dies. You know, is there some type of intermediate state where one enters before the final judgment? We don't have time to work through all that this morning, but I would be happy to talk more if that interests you. But for us, as far as our text goes, I do think this is Samuel. I think the author actually presents this in a way, which we'll get to more in just a second. Okay, Maybe third kind of odd detail. is How is the medium actually able to do this? Was she actually able to call Samuel from the dead to communicate? Now, we do see throughout the scriptures, there is something when it comes to the world of the occult. And through demon forces, there is a power that some can tap into where they have experiences that are just hard for us to wrap our minds around. Now, sometimes it's a little hard for us to wrap our minds around the spiritual world, but Scripture is clear. Right? There, there are forces of evil that are powerfully work around us. And by the way, this is why we never want to play around with occultic-type things. 
as if there's like nothing to them. There's something there. And at times there are like dark forces of evil that are so present, that are so active, that, that it's actually kind of terrifying. No, I don't think these forces of evil have power to like communicate with the dead. Although I do think perhaps there is some communication to the demonic world, which also is a scary and terrifying thought. But here in the text, even though I do think this is Samuel, I don't think the text presents in a way that Samuel came from the, to speak to Saul because of the power of the medium, through some type of her own dark power that she was able to summon him up. Rather, I think the text seems to indicate this is actually the Lord who sent Samuel to the woman to speak to Saul. So this is actually a further act of judgment on Saul. Okay, fourth. Just let me mention here before we get back to our text. This is not a normal passage. This feels odd to us for a reason. This is not like a common occurrence of something that the Lord does, where he uses like dead prophets to speak to us through visions. So friends, this is a, a descriptive passage of an incredibly unique story. And this really is one of its kind in the scripture. So this is not a prescription by which how we see God commonly work. And because of that, that's why this passage really should feel odd to us. This is why we must stay focused on the big picture of the text. Just keep saying, to Saul's demise. Because that Saul's demise actually is common to our own hearts. That over time, we can actually look like Saul in our own demise. Okay, we'll get more to that in just a bit. Just those are some of the odd details, but back to the text. Verse 13. As a woman spotted Samuel, we read that it also became apparent to the medium just who it was that she was talking to and who made this request. And she began to understand that this is actually Saul who came to her behind a disguise. So in the text, she says to Saul, like, hey, why are you deceiving me by wearing this costume? I know who you are. You are Saul. To which Saul responds back, yes, I am Saul. But listen, you do not need to be afraid of me. I'm here. I'm not going to do any harm. But please tell me, you saw something that caused you to scream. Tell me, what, what, did, what did you see? To which the woman responded back, Saul, I did see something. I saw a god coming to me out of the earth. To which Saul responds back, oh, uh, wow, could you describe this appearance? What did this figure look like? Well, Saul, he's an old man who was wrapped in a robe, which here seems to be an indication she didn't know it was actually Samuel. She didn't say Samuel, just rather she described what she saw. But whatever she understood, you see in verse 14, Saul knew without a doubt who this was. He knew this was Samuel. And as he learned this was indeed Samuel, Saul like falls on the ground on his face to pay homage to this great prophet and priest, which is just more hypocrisy in Saul. Verse 15, somehow, seemingly through this medium, Saul or Samuel begins to converse with Saul which is odd. In the text, Samuel seems like he has like, some real annoyance in his tone. So he talks to Saul by like rebuking him. Like rebuking Saul. He's like, hey Saul, like, why are you disturbing me? Why are you, re- you bringing me back up? And as Saul receives this rebuke from Samuel, we see him respond back. Uh, Samuel, I brought you back because I'm a little stressed out right now. You see the Philistines? Yeah, they have this huge army. One that's way more powerful than what we have. And you know what? They're already in our land. And they're wanting to war against me. And as I saw their massive army, Samuel, it was clear there was no way we could win this one. And by the way, let me back up, Samuel. Before you get a little angry and annoyed with me, 
Like, here's the deal before I brought you back. I actually inquired of the Lord first. So I kind of did the right thing before I sought to disturb you. I did the thing you taught me to do all those years back, so I sought the Lord. But you know what, Samuel? In our text, God has turned away from me. And I got nothing. I got no answers. I got no prophet. I got no dream. Nothing. And because I got nothing from the Lord, I had to turn somewhere. And so, Samuel, you really can't be mad at me. This really isn't my fault. I just summoned you so you can tell me what to do from here. You know, kind of like you used to do back in the old days when I was first king. To which Samuel responds back, seemingly with further annoyance. Saul, why are you asking me? Why are you asking me if the Lord turned from you to be your enemy? What do you think that I can do for you here? Verse 17. Samuel to Saul. And by the way, Saul, is this information about the Lord not responding back to you? Is this really that surprising to you? The Lord is doing what he's already spoken to you about in chapters 13 and 15. The Lord is just simply making good on his judgment over you. Indeed, the Lord is taking the kingdom out of your hand and is giving it to your neighbor, David. So he's doing this very thing that he said he was going to do all these years back when I was still with you. So Saul, before you start whining over this, before you start playing dumb, acting as you have no idea what's happening, before you start trying to play some type of victim card with me here, verse 18, the Lord is doing this because of you, Saul. Saul, you did not obey the voice of the Lord when you did not carry out his judgment against Amalekites, which is a reference back to chapter 15. And Saul, because you disobeyed the Lord, because you disobeyed him over and over again, because of your obsession to keep your power and control. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Verse 19, Moreover, in further judgment, Saul, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, which here seems the Lord judging the entire nation, for how they went along with Saul for years, not removing him from his power. So now here, they're actually being judged because of their lack of faithfulness. Keep going. As God's judgment was falling on Saul and Israel, Samuel informed Saul just how severe the judgment would be, which would be a judgment of death on him and his sons. As Samuel tells Saul that they will be with him, which I think here specifically moves from life into death. They will be with Samuel. And by the way, this answer is one of the reasons why I actually do think this was Samuel in the passage, and not some type of like demonic representation of Samuel that the medium is able to call up. So throughout this conversation here, Samuel, he's speaking truth. Samuel is like honoring the Lord and the word that was given already. He gives truth from information about what is to come and to the judgment that Saul was about ready to receive. It's like demons, they don't know the future. Like only the Lord does. And the scene, it seems like he reveals this information to Samuel that Saul, his sons, would die. And not only that, but the Lord would give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. I mean, think about how much of a sobering message for Saul this had to be. Strong judgment. This is a message that puts Saul into shock. I mean, think about it. For years, he had this game of manipulation, trying to keep his power, his control. And for years, for Saul, it seems like he was kind of getting away with it. But now in our text today, 
He learns not only was he not getting away with what he thought he was getting away with, but judgment was coming. And judgment that's not like somewhere out in the distant future, but swift judgment. Judgment that was coming for him tomorrow, like the next day. In the text, Saul heard this from Samuel. Verse 20, he falls again to the ground, heart racing with fear, no strength in him because he had not eaten all day or night, our text tells us. Which here for us, we can just picture Saul like you know, falling face first on the ground and he is just a puddle, like overwhelmed, crippled by fear. As that's happening, we see the woman now comes over to him. She could clearly see that Saul was terrified, so she said to Saul, Hey Saul, behold, your servant obeyed you in that I summoned up Samuel, even though I was hesitant to do this and how this put my life into your hands. So I did that. I listened and obeyed the command you gave me. And because I obeyed you, in verse 22, now therefore, Saul, you obey me. And I want you to eat this morsel of bread that I am setting before you, that you might regain some strength to go on your way. And now here, I can't tell if the medium's like trying to be nice to Saul, you know, trying to care for him, or it's like she's in a panic in herself after seeing Samuel. She hears a judgment about ready to come to Saul and his sons. So she's trying to like get Saul up, like hustle him away. You know, whatever the tensions may be in the text, we see that she was not able to convince Saul at least not right away, to, for him to get up and eat. You see that he refused her request by simply saying, no, like, I'm not going to eat. And as Saul says no, we see that Saul's servants then come to the woman, join in her pleas to Saul. As they begin to urge Saul as well to eat, where finally he listens to their pleas, which led Saul to getting up off the ground to go sit on the edge of the woman's bed, presumably to wait there for some food to be given to him. This leads to the conclusion of this odd passage in verse 24, if you take your eyes there. And then we see the woman go over to her fattened calf that she quickly kills. Uh, she took some flour and kneaded it to break some unleavened bread. Verse 25, she takes all the food that she just prepared. She puts on a plate. She gets the Saul to his servants to eat. And then after they eat, strength returns to Saul. So he gets up with his servants and left that night to go back to the camp which had to be a pretty lonely and terrifying walk for Saul to walk back that night to his camp, knowing that he was walking back to die sometime that coming day. Maybe for a picture, think maybe think like a death row inmate, just given his last rites, ate his last meal, now being led to his execution. That's Saul at the end of our text today. Now to close, say one last time. I want to focus on where I think the main focus of the passage is, which really is not the odd details. But as we close, I just want to focus a little bit more again on the spiraling downfall of Saul. Who said again, he actually starts out pretty good, only to end in such tragedy, ugly, ugly sin that brought with it severe judgment. Which is a close, this downfall of Saul, as I mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, this is a downfall that's actually not odd. Rather, what we see in Saul, his downfall, so many of these traits can actually be common to us as well. So I have a few things for us. First three are actually meant to be warnings to us, and then I have one fourth, hopefully some good news. So first, as we think through Saul, think through this passage, let's just be reminded that sin, it, it snowballs. 
which I know is something I've been brought, brought up many times in our study for Samuel. But I want to bring it up again, just because of how much of a theme this is in the life of Saul. A life of sin that just snowballed. That snowballed with such intensity that here, chapter 28, which proves to be the end of his life, he's talking to a medium to try to get help. And he does, even though our text reminds us that early in his life, Saul was actually the one who drove the mediums out of the land. You know, chapter 13, started seemingly such a small snowball of sin. You know, he's just trying to get control of a situation, a bad situation they're in with the Philistines, you know, taking, uh, winning the battle. He's trying to get control of his men going AWOL. Maybe just a little impatient with the timing of how long it was taking Samuel to show up to do the sacrifice. And from there, it just grew and grew and grew to today, in our passage today. Where over time, things like, you know, deeper and deeper desires for power and control, things like manipulation, making rash vows, poor parenting, even just like putting foolish people in his inner circle, you know, see me, maybe it's like kind of little things. All those things grew the snowball that over time crushed Saul. Friends, it keeps saying it. Yes, odd passage. But the snowball of sin that we see in Saul's life, this can be a far too common a story. A story that unless we repent and turn to the Lord to seek forgiveness for sin, this will be our story as well. Right? A little snowball of sin that, that crushes us. So this morning, whatever your sin may be, whether it be sin similar to Saul, Maybe some type of other sin is very different. Listen, don't be naive to think that sin's harmless. That's really not that big a deal. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to be like Saul and act like you had like no idea. Listen, the Lord is very clear in his word, even in the conscience that he's given to us when it comes to sin. Like we have no excuse. Unless we repent, it just will snowball. Second, what we can learn from the life of Saul is that sin will eventually catch up to us. Eventually the snowball will crush us. Certainly true of Saul in this passage. Perhaps a long time, 30 years, maybe getting away with what he was getting away with. A long time, maybe trying to manipulate his weight out of his trouble. Eventually, things caught up to him. Eventually, things will catch up to us as well. And honestly, I think the longer things go by, you know, seemingly trying to get away with whatever sin that we're trying to get away with, the longer it goes by, often the worse and more painful the outcome will be. Friends, I say it again. Sin will catch up to us. Scripture is clear. Sin finds its way out. Perhaps we're fooling others. Perhaps we're fooling ourselves. But we're not fooling the Lord. This is the third thing that we can see from the life of Saul. Sin will be judged. Which is something we clearly see displayed in our text. As God judged Saul, God judged Israel for sin. And this reality of God's judgment over sin, this is something that is clear all throughout God's word. This is not something that God has kept from us. He's incredibly clear in his word. He's clear that we all have sinned, we all have fell short, and one day we all will die as we pay the wages of sin. Or likewise, we will join Samuel and Saul in the land of death as we wait the eternal judgment to come. And friends, tragically, since sin first entered the world in Genesis 3, 
which at that time, maybe even that felt like, maybe it's just a little snowball of sin. You know, our first parents, like, doubted what God had said, and they ate the forbidden fruit. Since then, the stain of sin that we all live in, by birth, by choice, right, we all sin, one day, that stain of sin will be judged. God will come to fully judge all sin, and there will be no excuse that we can make. No victim card we can play that we can offer up as why we sinned. Scripture actually is clear that on the day of judgment, all of our mouths will be stopped. Sin will be judged. It will be dealt with, which is the most terrifying of thoughts. To stand and have to give an account of our life to a holy God. Which actually is the last thing I want to say this morning. Which ultimately, I do think this is where our text is pointing us to, which is good news. Friends, listen. Fourth. God sent the Savior to save his people from their sins. This is such good news to us. So for us, when we read stories like Saul in the scripture, where we see his downfall, I do think it's there to better help us see our own downfall, our own sin. And as you and I were confronted by our own sin, we should feel conviction just how far short we fell. And as we feel the conviction, we should realize we can do nothing to escape the judgment of God on our own. The weight of our own sin, it is crushing. It actually should feel odd to us to think somehow we can save ourselves. Listen, we should know we need someone else to save us. In fact, we need God to save us from the mess we put ourselves in. And friends, the good news of the scripture, good news that could not be more clear in the scripture, is that God in his love and his grace and his mercy sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we could never live, a life without sin, only for Jesus to come to stand in our place, to die the death we deserve to die. We're on the Christ. Jesus Christ took the entire weight of sin upon himself, the entire weight of God's judgment and wrath upon himself, so that by faith in him, we could find forgiveness. Amen. Thank Listen to what the scripture says. This is from the book of Isaiah. This is speaking of Jesus. Surely he, surely Jesus, took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, smitten by, smitten by him and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He, Jesus, he is the one who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds... We're healed. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So friends, one last time. Odd story. That details a far too common downfall. And however you might see yourself in this passage, let this passage drive you to the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> the one who came to die for sinners like you, like me. Yet, through the power of God, rose again from the dead on the third day where he will eternally communicate God's love and mercy and grace to all who by faith turn and trust in him. Friend, may the story of your life, whoever the Lord might give you life, be a story of being washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you that Jesus came to die for sinners, sinners like us. And Lord, I pray that this morning that you would help us to run to Jesus. God, please help us to have repentance, to put away all sin that clings so closely. And help us just to trust in you, your word. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died so that we may be forgiven. Lord, we are just very humbled by the incredible love that you have for your people through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.